All right. Welcome. Glad that you're able to make it, and hopefully we can uh, ignore the coldness around us and, and focus on the, the text at hand. And uh, maybe by the end of the time, we'll be a little bit warmer. Well, this class is um, a brand new series of classes called the Survey of the the Old Testament, and this is one of the longest courses that we have um, that we're going to study. It's a 26-week long uh, series, and if that were not enough, it's it's um, really just the first part of a two-part series, which is uh, the study of the the whole Bible. So we'll start with the Old Testament. That'll take us 26 weeks, and then the New Testament is going to take us another 13 weeks. So altogether, it'll be about three quarters of a year worth of of studying here, and we'll finish in November. And it works out kind of well because we're we're starting through. Um, we're starting here at the beginning of January, and we're also most likely starting through some kind of Bible reading plan as well. And what we're trying to do with each of these books is try to understand what the topic. Uh, what the theme is of each of these books that we're going to look at. And typically what we'll do is we'll take one book per week. Uh, Genesis, we're going to take a little bit longer just because it's foundational to the rest of the Bible. Um, and some books will combine. We'll have more than one book in a week. But for the most part, we're going to do uh, one book uh, per week. And so that'll help us as we think through some of these Unfortunately, uh, don't have a Bible reading schedule that kind of syncs up with this. That would be ideal. But but uh, as we come to these various passages in the Bible, as we're studying them, then we can understand kind of what the theme is, how it fits in the rest of the Bible, and uh, and then what what drives it. So uh, we got quite a long study ahead of us, but I don't want to intimidate you. I want to encourage you um, that we have the privilege of of doing a survey through the Scriptures. Hebrews 4, verse 12 tells us that the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, and it penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. 2 Timothy 3:16 says that all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, rebuke, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Psalm 119, 105 says that the Bible is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And Psalm 119, 160 says the entirety of God's Word is truth, and every one of His righteous judgments endure forever. Deuteronomy 32, 47, Moses says that the words of the Bible are not just idle words for you, but they are your life. So, at Ambassador, we take the Bible seriously. The Bible is the place where we hear God speaking to us about himself, uh, about um, about us, about the world, about sin, judgment, salvation. So whenever we have the opportunity, we want to listen to God speak. We want to hear from God, and so we have this opportunity to do this over the next um, several months. Just take some time to slow down, dig a little deeper into the Word of God, and and see what we can understand. So I hope you. You stick with us for the next 10 months, and uh, it's going to require some work on your part just to, to be here and to think through some of these things with me. And um, so it takes a commitment, really, for us that, that we're going to pace ourselves and study our way through the Bible. Um, 
obviously if you can't make it to every class then then benefit from the class that you do and and um but but recognize that these classes are meant to kind of work together um we're not going to go in consecutive order necessarily some of the books will will kind of combine with others and and sometimes move more chronologically than than how you have them in your in your bible but but we will go through all 66 books eventually um all right, let's start with a word of prayer, and, and then we'll get into uh introduction of the Old Testament, and then we'll start with Genesis. Father, thank you for um, the, heat, <coughs> the heat that is now working, and thankful that you provide for all of our needs and care for us, uh, even before we ask or know what kind of challenges we have ahead of us. We're thankful that we can um, ignore those kinds of things that are going on around us, and... and um, and focus on what is most important. Lord, we, we don't need heat in order to have a meaningful existence. We don't need food um, in order to have a meaningful existence. We need your word. And so we, we come to you now um, thirsty for a drink from your word, hungry for, for meat from it. And so we pray that you would uh, feed us today. Help us to understand more clearly um, who you are, who we are, what salvation is, what what you have to offer, what you expect of us. And um, may we do that each time that we open the Word today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, why study the Old Testament? I mean, it, it is, after all, old, right? Um, and old is bad and new is good, right? Um, furthermore, we are Christians. We follow Jesus. Isn't the religion for the followers of Jesus laid out in the New Testament? I mean, the name Jesus doesn't even occur in the Old Testament, so why spend a half year working through the Old Testament? Why study the Old Testament? Ideas? Same source for both, meaning same author. Okay, good. So, um, kind of like we, we, lo- we saw that handout briefly last time, that God has His eternal... His eternal law. Okay, and then that that expresses itself in the law of Moses. And it expresses itself in the law of Christ. So so the source is the same. We we think about the law of Moses, we think the first five books of the Bible, but we could say as a whole, the Old Testament is an expression of how God thinks. So, yeah, we could focus on the New Testament and the law of Christ and what our responsibilities are and kind of ignore the Old Testament, but we'd be missing out on on, um, on God as its source, teaching us something about Himself. Anything else? Any other reasons why we might want to study through the Old Testament? Okay. There's so many, uh, you know, verses and allusions to the Old Testament. Exactly. Several hundred of them. Yeah, so you have, um, we really don't understand the New Testament properly without understanding the Old Testament. The Old Testament is the foundation for our understanding. For example, try reading through the book of Hebrews without reading Leviticus or 
some of these uh, requirements for sacrifices in the Old Testament temple? How do you know anything about um, that? Now, obviously, you've probably had some time sitting under the teaching or reading through the Word yourself, so you you know a lot of these things. But but think about it. If you didn't have the Old Testament, you wouldn't have the foundation. And so um, so we need the Old Testament. Here's um, let's turn to John 37. We'll, we'll get to Genesis here in just a second, but let's start with. Um, John chapter 7. Yeah. John 7.37. So, the first one, Old Testament is the Word of God. That was Paul's answer there. Um, Second one, the Old Testament helps us understand the life and ministry of Christ. Here in John 7... Jesus is speaking in verse 37. My pages are frozen. Um, Would someone read verses 37 to 39? All right, so notice verse 38, He who believes in me, as the Scripture said, from his innermost being. So Jesus is pointing back to um, their understanding of, of what the feast meant. So they, they couldn't properly understand um, what Jesus was saying without first understanding what the feast was all about. And so if we want to know what water and spirit have to do with anything, if we want to know... Um, what Jesus is talking about here. We have to have some understanding of the Old Testament. Thirdly, and here's um, more pointed to Bill's Bill's idea here. Uh, number three, the Old Testament is quoted and alluded to much in the Old Testament. So by conservative f- estimates, the New, the New Testament has uh, over close to 300 separate references to the Old Testament. And on top of those, we have 600 clear allusions. So we have about a 1,000 either clear quotations, references to the Old Testament, or allusions to the Old Testament. In other words, it, it kind of points to an idea that comes from there without quoting its source. So, so in other words, 10% of our New Testament is, is either a direct quotation from the Old Testament or it's an allusion. And so... The, the, author of the, the authors of the New Testament expect us to have some comprehension of what was going on in the Old Testament. And then fourthly, um, the Old Testament is about the Lord Christ. Um, it's more than just a help for us to know the New Testament. Jesus says that the Old Testament actually teaches about Him. So look at Luke 24 just to see this. And I'm afraid this passage has been abused recently by a lot of people in our kinds of circles, but that doesn't take away from the point that Jesus is making here. So we don't want to go to the other extreme and say, well, the Old Testament's not about Christ. Um, so so um, two disciples are walking on the road to Emmaus discussing Jesus' crucifixion, and suddenly the resurrected Christ comes alongside of them, 
and look at what he says here in verse 25. O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into His glory? Then, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, He explained to them the things concerning Himself. And then notice, all the Scriptures. What He's talking about there is not the completed 66 books of the canon. They're not completed at this point. right? He's still alive. In fact, None of the New Testament has been written when Jesus makes this comment. None. So when he makes this comment, uh, all he's talking about when he says all the Scriptures, there in verse 27, the very last phrase there, all the Scriptures, that's referring to what? The Old Testament. He says something similar in verse 44. Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets... In the Psalms, this seems to be how the how Jesus actually summarized the entire Old Testament. He called it the the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. Right, we we can break them up in different ways, but the law is talking about the five books of Moses, and then the the prophets include the minor and the major prophets, and then there's a couple other ones that are argued. The Psalms, Jesus probably was had in mind some something more than just the Psalms. In fact, the historical books as well. And um, that's a separate discussion. But the point is that Jesus is saying, listen, these three sections of Old Testament Scripture speak about me. And so um, Jesus recognized that even though his name is not mentioned, Jesus, in the Old Testament, it still has value because it all points to him. It's like a big, huge, um, um, like a satellite dish with kind of thinking like... um, maybe Star Wars, it's like the Death, Death Star type thing where it kind of sends out this beam. This is the Old Testament. kind of sends out this beam that points all to Christ. And um, the, the rest of the New Testament authors agree about that as well. Acts 3.18 says that God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that this Christ would suffer. 1 Corinthians 5.15.3 says... Uh, Paul says, I delivered to you of first important that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, what? According to the Scriptures. And that He was buried and that He rose again according to the Scriptures. In other words, it's it's a fulfillment of what was expected in the Old Testament. Um, so, in other words, we get a richer picture of who Christ is based on our understanding of the Old Testament helps to fill in the gaps and actually uh, see Christ as who He is when we understand the Old Testament properly. All right, any questions on that before we dive into Genesis? All right. Let's start with uh, Genesis chapter 1. Again, as I mentioned, normally we take one or two books per class. This is what our normal pattern is going to be. But because Genesis is foundational, um, we're going to we're just going to take the first two chapters today, and then chapters three through eleven next time. This portion of the Bible was written by Moses. Of course, he wasn't there to be an eyewitness of these events. Um, but these events were revealed to him at some point during his time as a prophet 
um, as the nation of or for the nation of Israel by God. And the theme of the first two chapters is as follows, um, nice and short and memorable for you. God is an eternal and self-sufficient God who by sheer verbal command has sovereignly created the universe and all that is in it in order to display His glory. The crown of His created order is mankind, the only creature created in God's image. Human beings are created in order to specifically display God's glory as they obediently govern the earth while enjoying loving fellowship with God and each other. All right. If you look on the back of your handout, um, there's a study outline for Genesis 1 and 2. And this is where you're going to find the study outlines each week. So, in other words, if you were to keep a pile of these handouts, then you could um, kind of have some kind of study outline for each book that you get to. And hopefully that will be helpful to you. Um, just uh, it's, it's good to kind of know where the author's going and, and what he's trying to accomplish here. So, let's get into the text and, and see um, where this where uh, God is going with this, where what he's trying to teach us. Would someone read verses 1 through 5? Alright, so the first thing that we should notice is one of the keys to, to understanding anything is find out what the subject and verb is. Okay, so what's the first subject? What's the subject of the main sentence in the first? God. Okay, so the subject is God. The, the creation account is primarily about God. Of course, we have all sorts of other details about how long it took and the content, but we can't miss the, the main ob- objective by getting lost in the details. You know, we might want to study how these things all work together and how it was that light was created after vegetation so that we had vegetation on the third day and yet it didn't have any light to grow. So how did it stay alive? And then the sun and the moon and the stars were created on the fourth day. So how did that all... We could get lost in all those details, but we can't forget what is most important. That that the stories in the Bible, the stories in Genesis are not an end in themselves. They're not simply moral stories. This person did this, so you ought to do this. Or this person unwisely did this, and so you ought not to do that. It's more than that. First and foremost, the stories of the Bible are about God. Who He is, what He's like, what He's doing. And and once we understand who God is, then we can start to understand who we are. We can understand who who uh, um, who our neighbor is how we respond to God, what our expectations are. We have to understand God first. So what does this passage teach about God? Because only when we answer that question will we rightly understand what it tells us about ourselves. Well, the first thing that we notice is that God is eternal. Right? Did you notice that verse 1 doesn't start with a, a proof, a set of proofs for why God exists? It simply assumes that everyone knows it, right? In the beginning, God. It doesn't say... Um, here are five reasons why we know that there is a God. It simply assumes it. And uh, this is helpful apologetic for you when you talk to your unsaved friends. Um, 
I, I don't get into arguments about ex- the existence of God. I don't think they're profitable because Romans says that everyone already knows that God exists. So just start with that assumption. They can claim that he doesn't get exist, but we know from Psalms, and we might not want to quote this to them, but we know from Psalms that the fool says in his heart that there is no God. So everyone knows that God exists. And, um, and we see that really at the beginning of Genesis. Maybe a more helpful way to show to your unbelieving friend is just say, how, does the script, how do the scriptures start? It, it simply starts with, like, God exists. The fact is that no one made God, right? Um, there's, there's, we have this account of creation, but God doesn't have a creation for himself. He has always exist, existed. And, and this is hard for us to, to think about, right? Because we understand starts and ends, right? We understand that everything has a beginning and an end. Um, you know, we, we have projects at home that have a start, and then usually they get to the middle part and stop. But, but they're usually they're supposed to get to the end. Um, we, we know that we had a beginning and that we'll, we're going to have an end, at least in some finite way. Um, seasons start and they end. So we're here in, in winter and, and we know that, there's, that that's going to end at a time. And, you know, we also know that the heat starts up in this building and that it, then it ends. Um, but, uh, but spring is coming, sure of it. Um, but that's not the way it is with God, is it? He is eternal. No one and nothing can claim that they made God. God is God and there is none like Him. Psalm 90 verse 2 says, Before the mountains were born, you brought forth the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. So the first thing that we learn about God in the book of Genesis is that God is eternal. The second thing um, really comes out of that idea, and that is that God is self-sufficient. God is self-sufficient. Notice that God is completely alone in His work. He doesn't have any need for for assistance from a, a, one of His creation. This is what we what what theologians call this Latin term ex nihilo, which is out of nothing. He made things out of nothing. When we make things, we have to have something to start with. We have to have some kind of material in order to turn it into something. We have that creative ability, but we don't have the creative ability like God does, right? In the sense that. We can take something from nothing and turn it into something. God can. So how then did he do this? If he had no physical matter to work with, and the answer is found in verse 3. The first three words there. Then God said. God created the universe by the power of his word. He simply spoke and it came into existence. Light was born when God said, let there be light. Look at verse 6. Let there be an expanse in the midst of the water and let it separate the waters from the waters. Verse 9, Let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And the list goes on and on. God's Word is so powerful that even those things that do not exist, when they hear His voice, they obey. This brings us right to the next point which is that we learn that God is sovereign. That means that God has complete control over the universe. That there is not one molecule anywhere that can frustrate God in His purposes. Whatever He has planned, He will accomplish. It will happen. That's what verse 3 reminds us of, that, that when God said, let there be light, 
the response is that it was so. There is light. Moses is making a a point with, with this abrupt wording. God makes a command and there's an immediate result. It was so. Look at the end of verse 7. It was so. The end of verse 9. It was so. Verse 11. And it was so. And then verse 15. And it was so. And the list goes on. What God determines, what He speaks, comes to pass. Comes to pass. So before we move on to think about what we learn about mankind, uh, we also see that God is good. Seven times in Genesis 1, God looks on what He has made and He calls it good. Verses 4, 10, 12, 18, 21, 25, 31. God looks on what He says and He says, Behold, it is good. The created universe that I have made is good. The creation is not God. It's not to be worshipped, but it is good. God is a good God. He makes good things. He does good things. We don't have a cruel despot in heaven uh, who's, who's just forcing things to happen um, because he's cruel, but we have a good God who does good things for his good creation and his good creatures. All right. Any questions on a few of the things that we learn about God there? All right. Would someone read verses 26 through 28? All right, I love the account of creation. There, you have this um, kind of abrupt transition from one day to the next. You know, let there be light, and there was light, and and it was so. And um, and then evening and morning were the first day, and it moves on very quickly until you get to the creation of man, and then the narrative slows down. And uh, it reminds me of um, kind of uh, like a wedding. You know, why take so much time for and make such a big event over something that could happen within a few seconds, right? You just, uh, I do, I do, we're done. Why go through all the covenants? Why go through all the pomp and circumstance? Why go through, um, you know, the bride being handed off, all this symbolism? And, And the point is, because this is a big event, this is an important event that expresses something that is real and that ought to last. And God does something like that when He slows down. It's not that He takes more time, Right, because he actually created the animals earlier, but the narrative at least slows down, doesn't it, to help us to see how important it is that mankind is made. Not that we are better than God, but but we are the pinnacle of His creation. In fact, you don't have any mention of the, the angels being created. Now they were created at some point, um, but but you don't have any mention of it. Job talks about how the angels were there at creation, um, at some point in creation, praising God throughout the process, but. But um, in, instead of focusing on that here in this text, it focuses on mankind. That God kind of slows down, shows them what He expects of them, 
And um, even chapter 2 is kind of a re recounting of what's already happened in creation. It says, you know, the man was made out of the dust of the ground. God breathed in him the breath of life and then took the rib from the man and, and made a woman out of him and, and so on. So you have this slowing down because um, man is different than creation. How is it that man is different from creation? Well, look at your first point there under who are we. Human beings are created in the image of God. So um, there is a, some debate about whether the angels are made in the image of God. The scriptures don't say that, but they have a lot of the same characteristics. Uh, what we do know is that, okay, leave the angel argument aside, but all the rest of creation is not made in the image of God. Plants are not made in the image of God. They don't reflect Him in the way that we do. They don't have the ability to create. Um, animals are not made in the image of God. Okay, they don't have the, the mind, will, and emotions like we do. Okay, they, they are sim- simply instinctive creatures. We might look at them and say, wow, they're really happy right now. They're actually just running on instincts. Um, they, they don't have the capacity to create. They don't have the, 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 the capacity to love. Um, again, we, we might attribute those kinds of actions to them, but, but only we represent God in that way. Um, secondly, being created in the image of God not only puts us in a distinct relationship with God, but it also carries with it a distinct role. That we have um, this role in creation. Notice your second point, that we are to image God. So God made us, as Paul just read, uh, in His image, he says in our image, which we now understand that he's talking about the triune God there, according to our likeness, and that they would rule. So you do what I would do. If I were there on the earth in human form, this is what I would do to the creation. I would have dominion over it. I would rule over it. And, and I'm not there in that form. So this is your job. You, you are made in my image. Now you image me. You shine all the characteristics of, of my glory to the, the watching world. So we see God's part of God's motive in creating that he, he creates the world in order to display <coughs> excuse me to display his glory. Revelation 4:11 says you are worthy our Lord and our God to receive glory and honor and power why for you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. Jesus said in Matthew 5 let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So, how is it that we image God? If we're made in the image of God and we are meant to image God, to represent God, well, look at that third point. Human beings are to exercise dominion and care for the earth. That we should have some kind of lordship over the earth. Look at verse 26. The second part says, let them rule, let them have dominion, let them have lordship. That's the idea. Verse 28, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the seas and the birds of the air, and so on. So he, he has responsibility over the parts, the various parts of creation to rule it well. This doesn't mean that we're given a blank check to just use the, the earth and, and all of the plants and animals however we want, um, apart from God's desires and purposes. We still have accountability to Him, but we have, we are... Um, we, we have this authority that comes from God and we are supposed to pass on or, or use our authority over the, the earth. 
supposed to be exercised in a way that that, that makes the earth a, a good place to live, that that we are to be a kind of a king over uh, God's creation. All right, so the account of creation tells us about who God is. It also tells us about who we are. Do you have any questions on that? Yes. Yeah, that's true. Right. Yeah. Yep. Good. Third question we can answer from the text is, what is the world? And at the beginning of chapter 2, we read of God resting from His work, and that's because, as it says there in verse 2, that God was finished. Not because He was exhausted, but because He was finished with all His work. And this is important because... We are supposed to, remember, follow the example of God and image Him. And one of the ways that we do image Him is by taking one day a week to rest. Uh, There is this still uh, pattern that ought to be the case for us that we work for six days and then we rest. Um, It doesn't mean that there was no work to do on the seventh day, right? It it wasn't for God, there wasn't. But for man, does does the earth ever stop needing care and and dominion? No, there, there... there needs to be um, care the constantly going on. He, he simply has to step back, take some time to rest, trust that God can take care of these things because he's, he set up this, this pattern of six days on and one day off. So what we learn about the world is that the world is created as a place of rest and peace. Then um, in chapter 2, verses 18 through 15, we can answer the question, how are we, we to relate to each other? Um, this rest and peace existed on every level between God and man, between man and earth, and then this rest and peace also existed between man and woman. And we don't have time to talk about all the implications of the marriage relationship and how this first marriage was established, but, but for us right now, we need to recognize that there are two created beings that had perfect harmony of thought Emotion, love, communication, cooperation, understanding, trust, and peace. That, that this is how God designed the marriage relationship to be, and, and both of them were made in the image of God. Both of them were meant to image God in how they relate to one another. All right. Well, all this sounds wonderful. But imagine that the Lord exercises complete sovereignty and care for His pristine and peaceful creation as people live there in perfect fellowship with God and each other, exercising their stewardship and rule over uh, the earth like kings, displaying God's glory. Well, what's happened? I mean, why don't we experience this kind of, of peace and rest and proper rulership over the world as they once did. I mean, I I look around and don't see a pristine environment and people living in love for God and love for each other. Instead, we see all sorts of natural catastrophes and all sorts of interpersonal conflicts and war. 
people hating God, hating each other. So what happened? Yeah, chapter 3 happened. We're not going to get there today. But, but these chapters, uh, in chapters 1 and 2, help describe for us what happened before all that uh, destroyed what we now experience, this world as it is now. This, all this in chapters 1 and 2 happened before man's rebellion against the good and loving God. And so we'll read about that mutiny and high treason next week. Um, and, and I mention it now because um, what God established originally, He's seeking to restore. He's, he's seeking to restore that Edenic state where we had perfect fellowship with God, where we could walk with God in the garden, where there was nothing that was hindering us um, anything coming between us and our relationship with God, and that's going to be the case in the in the in the eternal state when God comes and dwells among us. He's going to the New Jerusalem is going to come out of heaven and come to the earth. It's going to be established right here on the earth. So that the throne of God is here among us, so that the triune God is living among us, not just the person of Jesus Christ, but the but the triune God, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit will be living in the middle of the city on the throne in the New Jerusalem. And we will be able to come in and go out as we please. Um, the gates will always be open. And um, in fact, we'll live in that city. And and we will have this eternal rest and peace and fellowship with God that God uh, established from the very beginning. We, we, we're going back to that. We're working our way to that. When I say working, I'm not saying we're earning it, but... But I'm saying that God is working His way back to to, to create that. So, uh, so we'll have to uh, explore more of that for next week. And really, that's the rest of the scriptures, right? Genesis three talks about how the sin came into the world, and then from there on out, it talks about how God's working to restore that that relationship that He had with us in Genesis one and two. All right. Any thoughts before we? Wrap it up here, Jonathan. Yeah. Um, well, it's either. I mean, you're, you're going to fall on either side of the argument based on either observation of what you see in the animals, or in implications that come from Scripture, which is what I'm trying to to say. And and this is not a doctrine that ought to divide us. It's just. I mean, I I think it's it's um, personally I think it's evident from the text that that animals animals are not made in the image of God. They can't reflect God. Uh, what what creates personhood is that they have a mind, will, and emotions, that they actually have the ability to to think and reason. And we might say, well, what about these monkeys who can you know do all this communication and stuff? Again, I I would just argue that's more instinctual. Um, maybe it might be helpful if I could uh, go back to my uh, my professors, my theology professors' notes on that maybe. I'll get you a copy of that. Um, um, 
but but again, I I I wouldn't want to get into a, a schismatic discussion over it because in the big scheme of things, it doesn't matter. What what does matter is that um, we are made in the image of God, and we are to reflect God, and we can do that in a way that no other creature can. Um, so that's that's the main point that we. But yeah, that's a good that's a good observation. And yeah, we I I mean we have a dog, so we. We kind of see some, and we even attribute some some emotions to the, to him sometimes, and and um, and even evil. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, last night he, I left my ice cream on the on the ground next to the chair, and I went to do something else, and he took over for me. So, um, yeah, he was helping me. He was helping me lose weight. He's good. He's a good dog that way. Um, all right, uh, just a brief word on application because, again, we don't want this to be solely academic. There, ac- academia is important. Understanding facts is critical to us understanding God and ourselves and how to respond. But it, we have to move from there, right? James 1.22, we want to be doers of the word and not hearers only. So, based on what we've looked at today in Genesis 1 and 2, primarily theology, um, how might we apply what what are some applications we can draw from Genesis 1 and 2? Any ideas? What might it do to shape how we think about ourselves, how we live on a daily basis, how we live here in the church? Um, what do you think? Paul? All right, so it teaches us something about just listening to God and and seeing what he has to say and then responding with obedience where necessary or when we don't fully understand, just we don't have to um, try to speculate. Um, good. Anything else, Jonathan? Yeah, so we'll talk more about that um, next week because what happens when we fell in Adam is that we didn't lose the image of God. In fact, every single one of your neighbors and unsaved family members still has the image of God. They still are made in the image of God. They still, in fact, that's why there's a death penalty, Genesis 9, 6, because anyone who sheds man's blood, by by blood shall his man, something like that, uh, by man shall his blood be shed, because he's made in the image of God. So the reason we value life is because that person is made in the image of God, even if they're not a Christian. We value that life, right? So um, our job now is now that we know Christ, we now are being renewed into the image of Christ. So this is kind of the part of the story that you're going to see throughout the Scriptures. We were made in the image of God. That image was marred but not fully lost. Now we're, God is working to restore it through our relationship with Christ. So, good. Anything else? Um, just a couple others that I was thinking of. Um, 
one, sin is not a creation defect. It's not something that God inherently put into creation saying, you know, this is, this is good now, but I know it's going to mess up. Uh, sin is something that, that we created. Sin is something that we brought in. God didn't create sin. Um, uh, also, we already talked about God's working to restore us. Uh, how about this one? Of all creation, we have the greatest capacity for worship. Right? Um, it's true that God does receive glory from other things. Remember when Jesus says, you know, if you don't speak out in praise, then even the rocks will cry out. Right? So, um, and, and all, Psalm 19 says that all creation tells of the glory of God. So, in some way, God is honored through the plants and the waterfalls and, and the animals. But we have a special way of, of worshiping God. We have the pinnacle way of worshiping God, expression of worship, probably the best way to put it. All right, lots more implications we can draw from that and applications. But, but that's one thing that is helpful, and we'll try to do this at the end of each class, is as we're studying through these texts, is to think for ourselves, what, how could we apply these things? Because when you're at home reading the Bible for yourself, um, you know, Moses doesn't necessarily add application at the end of a, you know, a list of, of problematic sins. Uh, you need to figure out some application from that. Again, we, we learn application by first observing and then dissecting or, or interpreting. Then we can apply. All right, let's pray. I'll be dismissed. Lord, thank you for um, creating all that is. Thank you for the beautiful world in which we live in. We have seen so much of its beauty, and and we love um, worshiping you with our lives. And Lord, we know we don't do that as well as we should. So help us to improve, to be image bearers of you. Continue to conform us to the image of Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.